Very good. Eric, this is Tracy Van Deventer with Little Things First Podcast. Jim is on his way. He might pop in anytime. And if he does, it's going to be exciting and we'll welcome him. I hope he's safe and everything is going well. But meanwhile, you are the star of the show today. And so if you don't mind, I'd love for you to take some time to introduce yourself and tell us about what you do. Tracy, well, thank you very much for uh, making the time to have me on. Well, my name is Eric Scheninger. I am a former science teacher and principal from New Jersey, uh, but my travels took me to New York City with my wife, and now we live in Houston, Texas. But uh, my journey uh, should never have come to be because I was the principal that did not believe in anything that I now write about or work on with schools across the country and across the world. I was plagued by a fixed mindset. And I really wasn't open to change. You know, internally, I'm like, no, externally, yeah, yeah, I was a yes man. But I was, you know, the yeah, but guy. Yeah, but, yeah, but. But two things happened. A student told me school was like a jail as I chased him through my building. We <laughs> broke our cell phone policy. And I got on Twitter. Those two catalysts in 2009 changed my mindset. And I'm only here today because after that, those two points in time, we began to transform teaching, learning, and leadership in my former school. And because of the work of my teachers, we became globally recognized for innovative practices because we were able to show efficacy in our work. So left the principalship in 2014, and, and now I try to take those lessons uh, and impart them uh, in classrooms, schools, and districts across the country. Yeah, that's perfect. And if you don't mind, usually I let you guys do all the talking, but I have to share this story. So I worked, um, now it's been about 25 years, and I did work for, at the time, it was called the State Office of Education, and I was the first internet specialist. And I was, I, I made my own 100-foot phone cord. I had to learn how to crimp it and everything and make the little ends. And I just slung it over my shoulder and I was helping teachers learn how to use the internet. Jughead, Veronica, and we were thrilled when Mosaic came out as a browser. It's the little things, you know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. So I'm, I'm only putting that in context because, you know, I think technology years are like dog years in a way, right? You know, think about how far things have come and what a catalyst, you know, Twitter was for you and how even that has kind of expanded. There's so many other tools for that social media. And um, it, it, and I just I just want to say kudos to you because you, you kind of jumped in, uh, recognized the cell phone policy, as you were, you know, chasing the young man around and he was telling you it was like school, right? You, I mean, you, you were open to all the possibilities and, and I'd love for you to maybe just kind of tell us more about that journey. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the key is, you know, uh, often we are blinded by our own bias and that really inhibits us to really take a critical lens to where we are. If we don't know truly where we are, we can't get to where we want or our learners need us to be. And, you know, when I think about those two moments in time, you know, and I look at, you know, my work now, multifaceted, but yeah. as, as a coach, trying to empower administrators and teachers to question why am I doing that? Why am I doing it this way? Mm -hmm. How can I do it better? Mm -hmm. And what will tell me if I'm successful? Yeah. Because we were plagued by what I consider the most dangerous phrase in education. That's the way we've always done right. it. Right. And 
this was a carbon copy of classroom after classroom, yeah. all kids doing the same thing at the same time, the same yeah. way. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about mindset shifts and change in general, you know, we have to value it. You know, leadership is not about telling people what to do. It's taking them where they need to be. And we shouldn't change because we are told to. We should change because we see how it's generally going to make our jobs better. But more importantly, it's going to improve learning for those who we serve, our kids. Yeah. So when you think back to that, you know, time when you were sort of breaking that fixed mindset, what were some of the early, you know, innovations, if you will, that you had to try out and not do things like it was always done? You know, that yeah. there's a little fear in that first com- couple of Ooh. steps. So tell us well, there, about that. Oh, there's a lot. We could be here forever. <laughs> I mean, there were two things, you know, first off, you know, one was with my staff and me and another one was with our first big innovative initiative. So with my staff, you know, after the little blue bird started chirping in my ear, I did what I thought I was had to do. I held a staff meeting and I'm saying, Hey everybody, you know what? I got on Twitter and everyone's just like, uh-huh. and I'm like, listen, I got on Twitter. I'm thinking differently. And I really believe that together we can innovate in ways that can improve outcomes for our kids. And this is what you heard. This too shall pass. Yeah. You're going to wait him out. He's yeah. not going to hold us accountable. Yeah. So what I do, I wrote memos. I wrote memos. I sent emails. Six months later, nothing changed. Yeah. So I grabbed a non-tenure teacher because in New Jersey, we got tenure. And I said, hey, what the heck's going on? I'm giving you all this information. Why aren't you doing it? Eric, we're not doing it because you're not doing it. You're writing memos. Oh, I was writing memos, emails, all this stuff. And that hints me telling me that, uh, that because I was not doing it. And I think that's another key point is don't, uh, don't ask others to do what you have not yeah. or are not willing to do yourself. So that step was learning with my teachers. So yeah. that was shift number one. And that took about a year. Then I totally shifted on my cell phone policy and we went bring your own device we were the first school in New Jersey to go bring your own device back in 2009, 11 Whoa. years ago. Yeah. And here's the problem, Tracy. We just had kids running around with devices. Yeah. No vision, no language, no uniform expectations, and no training for our teachers. And we failed. And hardest thing I think about leadership is admitting when you don't get it right yeah. and having the guts to say, you know what? It's not working. We got to pause and get it right. And that's what I did. We then trained our teachers and our administrators for a full year before relaunching. And then when we relaunched, we had job embedded ongoing professional learning every year after that. And during that time frame, within years two and three of our Bring Your Own Device, we became one of New Jersey's top performing public high schools for achievement for the first time ever. Holy cow. So, you know, those are, I guess, my real two initial stories. And there's many. Many failures, right, right. A few successes, right. But, but those two really stick out for me. You know, and um, I, I kind of said the word memo because in my mind I thought what you were going to tell me was you should have been using technology or Twitter or whatever to kind of rally the troops. And you know, memo was a little bit old school. Oh well, I, I was if... using that, but nobody oh. was on it. No, I was <laughs> okay. the only one on it. But I thought as a principal that you yeah. were, you were effective if you drafted a memo in Word. I see, and then you emailed <laughs> it out while also having a paper. Yeah. 
Yeah, sweet. Well, you know, good for them to also kind of give you some open feedback, right? Because that shows that the culture was there for them to feel comfortable enough to kind of tell you that hard truth and then help bring you, you know, and, and you brought them and together you guys kind of walked down that journey. That's that's a powerful model in and of itself, just that open dialogue. I'm going to go back to the cell phone policy, if you don't mind. And not too long ago, I was at a high school level and it still is a problem, you know, the cell phone use, what's the right amount, what's not the right amount, how do you kind of make those designs. And in a way, I'm sure in some of your books, you've outlined the perfect policy. But share with us, what is the just right balance? Because it is a struggle. The perfect policy is, if you want to mitigate issues, it really comes down to sound instructional design. There needs to be a purpose for its use. There has to be a balance. There has to be accountability. You know, when I think about when we were in school, uh, I'd be willing to wager, uh, Tracy, that you might have written up a note and passed it to someone else during class. Now, or, I just talked a lot, but I understand okay. what you're saying. <laughs> or you, you doodled or you saw someone using a cheat sheet. Yeah. Now, technology has just, you know, amplified the off-task behaviors. But let's go back to it. Why were people off-task? Because they weren't engaged. There was no relevance. Yeah. So I think when you think about policy, you know, Obviously, it begins with relationships. Mm-hmm. Without trust, there's no relationship. If there's mm-hmm. no relationship, no real learning occurs. Mm-hmm. With those relationships, you got to make sure that kids understand why am I learning this? How will I use it outside of school? Mm-hmm. And what will tell me if I'm successful? Mm-hmm. Then we need to challenge them to think using upper levels of knowledge taxonomy. But yeah. the whole thing with the device is. You know, we all know if if we are mesmerized by a story, if we see the purpose, we see the value, we're not on our devices. But let's think about our own off-task behavior as adults. When we go off-task, why? Because that we see, we don't see how we're going to be able to use this in our work. We see that time could be used differently. Um, We're not, it's not, good pedagogy is not modeled and there's no accountability. So I'd say that, you know, there is no perfect policy, but the foundation for a good policy is grounded in sound pedagogy. Yeah, I love that. And you're absolutely right, because we ourselves are, you know, challenged as learners and we're impatient, right? And so you went through all those things that absolutely drives us crazy when we're in a professional learning situation. And you're, you know, you'll see a wide swath of adults kind of off task doing their own thing for the same reasons. So I think you're bringing up a really excellent point that really that instructional focus, that engagement, and and I might even add um, a level of respect. You said relationship, but I think it also ties into respect, right? You know, that you've got that um, connection. Uh, you you have a certain level of, tr- of trust and respect for the students and learners and they to you as well, because you've set up those parameters, because you've got those guidelines and the monitoring um, in place that, yeah. And I think one other thing too is, you know, you see a lot of things out there about all oh, cell phones are causing academic declines and, and all this. Well, here's the deal, you know, in our policy, Kids were only allowed to have their phone out at the discretion of the teacher, and it was being used aligned to a learning outcome. There's, yeah, that's yeah. a big difference in a free-for-all. You know, if kids can just have their phones out all the time and do whatever they want, well, yeah, I've been in schools and districts like that, and it mm-hmm. is a mess. Mm-hmm. So 
I think combined to the pedagogy, there has to be some shared norms uh, and expectations that are uh, co-created between teachers, administrators, and students. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to go just a little more into that sort of, you made reference to that innovation and then sort of being able to measure whether this was useful, whether this was really helping, right? The end goal, which was to help your your students improve. How, what kind of measures? How did you actually guide that process for your teachers? Or maybe they were already, you know, pretty well-versed and pretty comfortable with that. Well, I, I was wondering yeah, if that shifted. Yeah, I mean, like for us and for all the schools and districts that I uh, have the honor of working with, it's always setting a baseline. You know, where are you at with your, you know, sort of qualitative and quantitative metrics before any large scale change. So obviously first, you know, you want to look at data, you know, where is student achievement? You know, where are your struggling subgroups that you want to lessen the gap? Uh, Where's graduation rates, promotion rates, SAT, AP. So that's what we did, you know, and we looked at where we were before our our renaissance and then where we were at the end. Now, we will never say that we improved achievement because of bring your own device, because of personalization, but those were facets that did change during our renaissance that were key elements to it. Uh, You know, now, you know, I'm I'm working with a district uh, in Mississippi and I've been with them for three years and we're just looking at all the evidence in terms of student work Mm -hmm. and staff work and comparing it now to where they were when we began. And it's, it's like night and day. Yeah. I cannot speak highly enough. Um, and I think the measure of success is now neighboring administrators, superintendents from Alabama wanna come and visit this school district to see what they are doing. Nice. And uh, so I, I think it's a combination of, you know, qualitative and quantitative means. Yeah. But again, you have to set that baseline. Sure. Um, you know, where, where are you before you implement uh, any type of change initiative? What yeah. type of professional learning supports are put in place? And then what will you collect as artifacts and evidence to kind yeah. of paint a picture of where you are? Yeah. And good advice, because all along the way, as we're trying to innovate in education, we need to look at those things. We need to know where we start and have a pretty clear picture about where we're headed and what the ultimate purpose is. Uh, I just noticed that my uh, friend, Jim, is going to be joining us. Oh, yes. Let's bring him in and harass him a little bit. All right. Ready. (laughs) Jim. We missed you. We hope you're okay. I was thinking, I hope he hasn't been in an accident because I witnessed one yesterday and I was freaking out. No, no, no. I got caught up in a meeting, so I'm sorry about that. That's okay. We're so glad you're here. Now, Tracy, it's hard to give Jim a hard time because he has a fabulous haircut. He does. I just cannot (laughs) give him a hard time. And you know what? If Jim's in a meeting, Jim's in a meeting about kids and I know that that's the fact and that's what's going on. And so, you know, kudos to him. So I'm glad I'm glad that he's been able to join. We've been just talking a little bit, Jim, about, uh, you know, how he kind of got started in some of the innovation. At first, you know, he was in a fixed mindset and then just kind of got a little taste of Twitter and uh, maybe a couple of honest, truthful things being said from students or staff and kind of moved him along the way. And now we're just talking about growth over time. And, and I'm certainly interested in hearing more about how the work you're t- you've been doing has helped. I mean, it's a, it's a duh to a certain extent, but 
coronavirus effect has had a tremendous impact on education, right? And having that openness to be able to respond on the fly and innovate, I'm, I'm curious how you can speak to that, the work that you're doing, how you were able to support people, some of the patterns you've seen, advice for, for us out here. Yeah, I mean, again, I gotta be careful because I get very passionate and I can go on and on and on. But prior to the pandemic, uh, the year before, uh, I visited over a thousand different classrooms. I can tell you right now, I have seen not only more change at scale during the pandemic, I've seen the most significant pedagogical shifts that I've ever seen in now my seven years since I started doing this full-time in schools. I cannot speak highly enough of the resilience, the tenacity, uh, the ingenuity of teachers and administrators for what they have been able to accomplish. And I will say to crown jewels, come from your home state of Utah, because in the past month, some of those examples that have completely blown me away, and they are exemplars that I put up against anywhere else in the country, have come from Davis schools and the Joab school district. Um, so I really just, I, I think the pandemic as, as difficult as it was, yeah. was a fantastic wake up call for educators that really helped them uh, get that laser focus and some did not want to change, but I was on <laughs> with a teacher group earlier today that are in a personalized learning asynchronous cohort uh, in Davis schools. And after one teacher shared her journey, she said, Eric, I could never go back to the way I used to teach. I will tell you right now, I have heard that phrase over and over and over again. So, you know, when we think about adversity uh, and I think that really creates the opportunity to do things differently. And I look at the pandemic as a clean slate moment. Everyone had a clean slate. It's what you do with that clean slate. And I'm proud to say that across the country, educators have taken that opportunity to reinvent, reimagine, transform, whatever word you want to use, but kudos to them. Yeah, absolutely. So Eric, the, the reason why um, your name came up in the first place is because I was having a conversation with some principals from Juab School District who were talking about their efforts with competency-based personalized learning. And um, the Utah State Board of Education is really um, steering that ship. They really want to see all districts move that direction. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe you've already covered it because I am late, but you know what you haven't already talked about? What, what kind of work have you done in terms of getting Juab to, to move down this path? Yeah, and, and it's, it's not just Juab. The, the work kind of started here in Davis schools uh, where I am right now currently. And you know the whole sort of vision is you know, how can we create an equitable culture of learning where all kids are getting what they need, when and where they need it. And as you think about personalized competency-based learning, you know, uh, the framework and the image that the state of Utah has created is fantastic. And you know what I always tell people? Nothing in there is new. You know, when we talk about all these innovative practices, nothing is new. If anyone gets up here and says, oh yeah, I wrote this book, this is new, innovative. No, it's not. What's new and innovative is how actual teachers and schools take an idea, implement it in a way that shows efficacy. 
you know, and you know, when I, when I was in Juab recently, I saw, I saw not one of the best example of differentiation that I've ever seen. And it was awesome speaking to that teacher, talking, hearing about how she used data to group and regroup her kids. So, you know, whether it's Juab, Davis, or other schools across the country and other states, when we think about personalization, it's about moving to those high agency approaches you know, voice, choice, path, pace, place, understanding there's a time and place for direct instruction. But after that, how do we maximize the time that we have? And that's the key. Personalization is about getting educators to think about how the time is being used because some kids, they don't need that teacher during the class period. And that's not a negative. They've already got the concept. So, you know, I would say educators in GWAB and those in other districts across the country have really just latched on to the fact that they don't have to be the purveyor of knowledge. They don't have to be the sage on the stage. They don't have to give kids that same level worksheet, but they can have kids working on a scaffolded assignment and then pulling kids for one-on-one -on -one or small group instruction. So, you know, the big shift, in my opinion, in Juab and other districts is educators using time more effectively to meet the needs of all kids. So what's the difference between competency-based learning and um, uh, personalized learning? Well, I mean, competency is, you know, when we think about, you know, the standard, you know, are kids showing competence in that personalization is allowing them different ways, different pathways to show that competency where it's not just a one size fits all approach. You know, maybe a learner is more adept at, you know, creating a video to demonstrate that level of competency. Uh, maybe another one I saw today, I saw uh, third graders because they've been, teachers been trying to get them the right, creating comics as mm -hmm. part of a choice board assignment. So I, I, when I look at the, it, it's, it's that sort of how kids show that competency, allowing voice, choice, path, pace, and place. So I'd say they are connected uh, intimately because almost everything is in education anyway, but that's kind of how I would, uh, I guess, differentiate the two. What are those five? voice choice. Can you describe them just real briefly? Yeah. It, like student voice is, you know, if you're in a classroom and you're asking questions during whole group, voice could be simply every kid having an individual whiteboard and being able to respond uh, or every student going on a digital tool and being able to start. Voice is simply getting every learner involved. And the pandemic was great in that sense, because when we were working remote, using digital tools, all that, Choice, choosing the right tool for the right task, choosing the task, choosing how to be assessed. We think about pace. You know, if learning is the goal, pace should not matter. And we all know that sometimes kids learn at different paces. Thinking about place, you know, place before the pandemic was flexible seating. Place could be watching a flipped lesson at home where students in the comfort and home or on the bus can watch the video as much as long as they need to and then go and do the associated tasks. But I think the real opportunity for schools is path. You know, knowing that, yeah, you want kids to get the general concepts, 
But if kids are already grasping them, setting on their own, their own, their own uh, path, and that really is where differentiation, not new, not new, but sometimes we don't see that implemented with fidelity, uh, but allowing kids to choose their own path, especially if they're already at that degree of competency with the standards. Nice. You know, what I love is uh, the when you mentioned earlier about how we really won't be able to go back. We, we have been altered, right? We have been changed, our reality, the landscape, everything is different than, you know, a couple of years ago. And I'm thinking back about the focus of our podcast is talking about the little things that make a big difference. So knowing that we're in this transition period, Utah, we have been mostly on campus through most of the year, but many, many of the schools across the, you know, nation haven't been. I'm curious, just as we transition back to whatever will be our new normal, what are some of the little things that you think are really important for leaders in the building to do to support this shift that has already, that has already started? I think one little thing is we, we got to keep front and center all the amazing practices that have taken place because uh, I have been hearing more and more as I've been in the field, physically in schools, how there is this rising fear and evidence of people already moving back to the way they'd always done things. So I think we have to continually bring up the successes, showcase the efforts of our teachers. And, and really when we think about, you know, just using personalization as an example, making sure that it, we, the momentum is not lost. So, you know, not just me sharing the exemplars, but really bringing those teachers in to yeah. staff meetings, to professional learning. I had a teacher today, first grade teacher here in Davis was sharing what she, a third, third grade, sharing what she did. I have the link. And then one other teacher's like, hey, can you teach me that? And I jump in and I say, um, why don't you create a screencast that's like 10 minutes so every teacher can benefit. So I, I think leveraging those teacher superstars, uh, active communication, educating the community as to, you know, here's why we were successful during the pandemic. Um, you know, so when we think about that leadership, that communication, that public relations, all those things are interconnected, but it's sometimes those little things that we take for granted, you know, and one little thing can turn into a big thing and then we lose our focus and then that kind of derails our progress. But, you know, I think another little thing is just keeping, uh, showing grace to those that we <coughs> work with, showing grace to ourselves, because this still is a difficult time. So that's my short list of little things. Active communication, celebration staff, keeping them on a pedestal, keeping the pedal, keeping the foot to the pedal, you know, keeping it on the gas, keep moving forward. But also a little thing can turn into a big thing is that accountability, you know, making sure that we're getting into classrooms, providing that positive feedback uh, so that we can continue to grow. Yeah. Thank you. Any more questions, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we always ask a question. It's usually at the end of our podcast and it's always about um, what, if you could go back in time and talk to a younger version of yourself, what advice would you give? And so we're really curious about what would you say? Younger Eric, get your head out of the sand. <laughs> you don't know it all. You're too stubborn and you really need to get out of your silo. And that connects back to my opening story that Tracy and I spoke about, you know, um, 
I was very stubborn. I became a, a, a principal uh, when I was 31 years old of, of a, a comprehensive, very diverse high school. You know, because of my age, people make assumptions. And one of those assumptions was that I was good with technology, which I really was not. So my advice would be to understand that a real leader that shows strength is willing to admit when they do not know something and that they need help. And that's advice that I give every single principal, teacher, central office administrator, organizational leader that I work with now is you do not have the, all the answers. You will never be able to make the right decision per se. But if we can continually question, you know, why we're making a decision, how we'll improve what we do, if we know that the resources are there and that we can get them, it will only make us better. So that's the advice for me. Yeah, I love that. I love that too, because as we talked earlier about that relationship and how important that is, I think that there is that openness, that vulnerability, if you will, at just being willing to say, I don't know, or I'm going to have to find out. And um, recognizing that we're always growing really goes a long way also in creating a culture where everyone is willing to continue to learn and everybody is willing to continue to grow. So thank you. That's, that's great advice. Yeah, thank you, Eric. And have you gotten a chance to brag about your books? Oh, I, I have not bragged about my books. Um, <laughs> well, tell, yeah, tell our uh, listeners about your books because I know you've got several out there and available. Well, yeah, and people should be and, checking them out. And interesting, everything comes back to Twitter. I got solicited to write my first book on Twitter. I never met my co-authors until the book was done. And after doing those two books, I, I then wrote Digital Leadership, which was basically synopsis of what we accomplished in my former school. After that, uh, Uncommon Learning, then Brand Ed, Learning Transform, then the new edition of Digital Leadership. I'm going over those quickly because my new book comes out May 1st, uh, Disruptive Ooh. Thinking in Our Classrooms. It is my attempt to create a, a resource for all educators, but mostly teachers. And, um, you know, the whole vision of the book was how do we create disruptive thinking culture, regardless of zip code, regardless of resources. Um, a lot of pandemic lessons are in there, but also lessons from the fourth industrial revolution. No real focus on technology because I wanted to be evergreen. But I think the proudest part of me was when I was asked to do the acknowledgements, I wasn't going to do them. And then I rethought it because as you go through the book, you'll see there's example after example from all the schools that I've partnered with. The best part for me in the acknowledgements was giving credit to all the districts and all the schools that helped make that book possible. And two on that list are the Juab School District and Davis Schools nice. here in your home state of Utah. So, I mean, for me, I could never write if I didn't get to spend time in classrooms. And I'd like to say that, yeah, the book was my pandemic project. It really was. I started it at the onset finished it while I was still in the pandemic, but I have learned just as much, if not more from the educators that I've been blessed to work with. And without them, I'd have nothing to write about. So disruptive thinking in our classrooms, May 1st on Amazon. May 1st on Amazon. All right. Well, thank you so much. And for those who are not watching, but listening, give us your Twitter handle and a way to reach you on Instagram. Yeah, um, I'm easy to find. You just Google Eric Scheninger 
S-H-E-N-I-N-G-E-R. You'll find me. My Twitter handle is E underscore Scheninger. And uh, I'm E Scheninger on Instagram. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us and to visit and share some of your expertise. Uh, your your openness and ideas and ways of thinking about things differently, you know, shows it shines through and kind of, I think gives me sort of an excitement about the hope for how we are shifting, how we are changing and how we are really trying to find what's best for kids. And I want to thank you for leading the way and appreciate your spending time with us today, just so that we could capture some of those ideas and use them to help build our own, our own work. My pleasure. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, I think I think you're really on the cutting edge of where we're moving education-wise, Eric. So thank you for for joining us today and sharing that. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.